Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. Today, Eric Hoffman joins me. He's a prolific co-conspirator of such projects as the Treasure Vaults of Zadaban, Black Powder, Black Magic, and the cyberpunk RPG Wetwired. Between Game Ocon, excessive disc golfing, Kickstarters, and general life nonsense, I was slow in getting this out. This was recorded over a month ago, and I don't remember all the things that we did talk about. So, I'm looking forward to giving this a listen as much as you are. The sun burns bright, and our supplies are running low. Sisters and brothers, let's get rambling. Hello, Eric. Hey, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing this fine evening? Pretty good. Can't complain. So you're now in the future. How's the future look? Yeah, it's, it's not it's not looking good. Oh, okay. <laughs> Total Armageddon over here, Jeff. Uh, you know, I just, I, you know, it's funny. I kind of look at the news, not necessarily on a political podcast, but I'm just thinking, my goodness, uh, we're sliding into in, into uh, to, to badness here with the with the election coming up. I'm like, there's it's no end in sight. One thing, yeah, it's time to turn <laughs> off all all news uh, for a year, just go into hibernation. Yeah, peek up, make sure it's still there. Okay, we're good. So anyway, um, thanks for coming on. I um, I um, uh, Jason Hobbs said, hey, you need to have uh, everyone calls you the Hoff. You need to have Eric Hoffman on. So. He calls me the Hoff. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. A lot, a lot of them do, yeah. <laughs> so, well, your first mistake is listening to Jason Hoff. I would well, definitely say that. So, <laughs> Well, it kind of intimidated me. I thought, well, I just better do what he says. So uh, so he, he was towering above me. He said, hey. You need to I, I made on. him. I was his first guest. He uh, he begged me to just record this podcast with him, and I kept telling him no because he didn't have a plan. And then we just did it. And what do I know? That not having a plan was pretty smart because it uh, did pretty well for him. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it goes to show that, um, yeah, I think, you know, that's just it. I mean, uh, sometimes the spontaneity works, probably sometimes it doesn't. So it, it probably just depends what you're trying to do. So yeah, but, but anyway, it's been it's been. Uh, I can't say I've enjoyed any level of success, but it's at least I'm still doing it. So at least there's uh, you know, besides my mom and, and sister, there's uh, I guess about it for listening. So. Uh, anyway, <laughs> you got to start somewhere. <laughs> uh, anyhow, the uh, so I did a bare minimum research because that's what I do, um, and it sounds like, from what I can tell, uh, that you have published some things for the for the uh, OSR. Yeah, yeah, I've been doing it on and off here and there, taking some breaks for um, not quite as long as the OSR has been around, but kind of that first wave of third party creator type folks um, from the G Plus dates, um, Google Plus. For those who don't know, it was kind of, um, I mean, in my opinion, it was the technical counterpart to, like, the OSR that really made it blow up. Um, it was kind of like the blogosphere that some people, like Matt Finch and um, Grognardia, uh, James Maliszewski, I think is how he pronounced his last name, were kind of doing, and Dyson Logos, and but it was, you know, very blog-oriented, and then when Google Plus came along, it just it was just, like, the social media that was perfectly designed for gamers and gaming not only was it a you know a post type of a feed scroll thing where you had your group of your circle of friends but you could also like launch an event directly from a community that you could create so you could create a community for a particular game you wanted to play 
launch a hangout and just start playing D&D online. And it was amazing. And um, so a combination of all those things really was kind of like blew out the OSR um, as far as from like people contributing and creating for both free and the flail snails movement, which was like, bring it, bring your character. It doesn't matter from where any game crossover, I'm running a flail snails game tonight at eight. And then you'd have just like all these people show up and play D and D. It was amazing. Yeah, it was, you know, not just for the OSR, but really all uh, for, I would say, in the RPGs in general, it was really a, a catalyst that really created, that brought a lot of people together and solidified in a way that nothing else has, was, did before and nothing else has since. Yeah, I I totally agree. It's been I miss it like almost every day. <laughs> I think for about a year I still would have muscle memory where I'd still kind of click, and uh, it's like stop it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, it's definitely definitely sad sad times when G plus one away. Yeah, it, it's uh, you know, and a lot of people were pretty upset with Google, but you know, it was free. Um, it, we probably should never have had it to begin with. So the fact that it actually existed and allowed us to do what we did, and um, and but I think we'll 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 be eighty year olds still talking about the glory of the of G plus. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it was kind of the step. I mean, I think I believe I was never part of the the was it the Foundry um, or the Forge? I'm sorry, the Forge was a big movement. And then I think uh, then the blogs and then later on, I think uh, the next step was the, um, the next step uh, really was Google plus, I think in that whole evolution. And, um, but I don't know what's, I don't know anything. I don't know what's filled in the next uh, or has driven the next level since you know, I don't know that there is. It is not. I think there was a diaspora of people who went different places there. Me, we was kind of popping for a little while, um, and um, I think uh, I, I had avoided Facebook forever, um, but recently have gotten onto it. Just I think a lot of my old circle, not all, but a lot of them are probably there, um, and so that's kind of a weak replacement. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I don't think anything's quite captured it um, like it used to for sure. Yeah, and I think, you know, Facebook has, I think, especially with the, I mean, even the with what's going on with Twitter, I mean, that's another thing that I think Twitter also felt, filled a really excellent niche, but that's has since been, been struck. In yeah, I, my social media is very segmented by my life. Like, Twitter is only work stuff. Um, Facebook is only game stuff. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not even connected with my family on Facebook. Um, yeah. I've just really siloed everything, um, like parts of my life. Um, but you know, my close circle of gaming friends, we still have an open hangout that's from the G plus days and you know, it's our, our hangout that we used then, and we're literally still using it today. It started as one of those community, um, uh, uh, event chat, uh, from when I was running a, B2 keep on the borderlands campaign on Google plus and hangout. And we're still using the hangout today on our daily, just getting to, you know, chatting with each other. It's Hobbs is in there and Paul Wolf from mystic bull and, uh, Thaddeus Moore who does the patches and, um, some other friends who I just met at conventions and, you know, it's a tight group of folks there and we still use it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's. I, I think there's been with some Facebook groups has has worked out to some. I think the problem is discovery of people is what's hard. Where I think G plus helps you discover people. Facebook is just kind of more, you know, uh, I guess more. Uh, that's where I'm looking for products or around certain things rather than yeah people. interest groups yeah yeah, yeah interest groups. I, I totally agree and in fact i would say that my circles have not grown by one person basically everyone i'm connected with on facebook is people i was from g plus and probably less than was there um and i think you know kind of tying this back into publishing which i think is you know why you have me on the podcast is um it's definitely changed um i am out of touch with like the current zeitgeist in publishing um having just put out two books really recently and not, and having not put anything out for a few years, um, it's very very different than it was. Um, it used to be, you know, I could sell a couple hundred copies just by making a post on Google Plus. Um, and now it's uh, between I think fifth edition, um, you know, opening up publishing for that, but just a new edition of Dungeons and Dragons, kind of reinvigorating um, interest in role playing games. It is a much more bloated market. Um, and I think, uh, you know, what you need to do to be successful is wildly different. It's, it's gone from a cottage industry to, I still won't say it's a real, and we had this fight all the time, me and my friends. Like, I, I don't recommend anybody do this as a plan for living, right? No. Um, but, um, but there's some, some real money of some stripe to be made now, and so it, uh, it's evolved, and it's, it's very different. Like, it, <laughs> The, the latest book I put out was just, you know, not doing well, you know, compared to what I thought it would be because I didn't put any effort into marketing or, you know, I don't have a Twitch show or a YouTube channel or, you know, uh, 200,000 followers or any of that. And that's what you need to like kind of, and I don't do Kickstarters anymore. I did one in my, in my career and it was a disaster. Um, so I don't want to do that either. And like, you have to do all those things to, uh, kind of just get to the point where you're where you're making some money. Well, yeah, I think, and especially the last one you're saying you don't do Kickstarter. So that's like the last. I mean, that's probably the. If you don't do any of those, it's pretty much impossible. I would say. Yeah, I mean, you really even, um, you know, there's the big boys, which is really like Wizards, Paizo. There's probably a few others out there. I'm not an expert on the industry. And then there's like that next level of very large indies, like the like Goodman Games is probably like that next level. And you know, I mean, he kickstarts everything. Um, you know, even though he has supply chains established and you know full time staff and product in the hopper and you know artists that have been working with him for a decade, they still kickstart everything. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and even even just the Kickstarter is not enough anymore. I think you've got to you got to, because that's bloated as well. You have to bring people to Kickstarter from some kind of a, um, an influencer type, you know, situation. Well, uh, or the, like uh, Facebook ads has, has been work for me. Um, yeah, I did Facebook ads once when I was uh, a part of Stormlord Publishing, uh, which was kind of like the first iteration um, that I published with Carl Bussler, and I think we did it once. We weren't really sure how effective it was, um, mostly because I think we were already tapping into our entire audience through Google+, Plus. because um, it was a pretty tight-focused audience. Well, the, I think the difference is that 
Facebook groups probably did not exist or to the degree that it did back then. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, I remember I remember the form that we were like picking keywords to and, and it gave us the data on what size that would reach and we were doing uh just general words. Yeah, it was not it's not group focused. You're right. Yeah, so I think with the and you still it, it's still kind of weird. You can't really focus on specific groups, but I think the fact that there's a lot of people in a sense identifying themselves by belonging to groups, I think that tends to help the the marketing juice. I I think, I don't know. Um it's not as I wish I could just target actual like Facebook groups cuz that'd be even better. Cuz there's like for some reason like I can I can target traveler um, but there's other, um, there's other groups like, like old school essentials I'm not able to do. So if I'm trying to do some of the old school essentials, I just have to still do like, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons or fantasy role playing. So I'm not sure exactly why like champions, I think champions or hero system is an option, but I'm like, why is that? I mean, I love champions, but like that, that is so like, so um, not in the mainstream at all, but yet old school essentials by far sells more. Yet it's not. So I, I'm not yeah, sure. It's, that is weird. Yeah, that, you don't hear uh, champions much anymore. Um, uh, I love that system. I uh, in college, I uh, my me and my roommates uh, or my roommates and I had a uh, Western hero campaign that we played. Oh my sporadically. goodness! That was just a blast. I mean, you know, it was just. Every Western cowboy, you know, kind of like stereotype adventure that we ran and everybody's backstory was just right out of a spaghetti Western and it was great. We just had a blast um, playing that. Yeah, it's very, it's a very good system in a lot of ways. I just think it's just the, it is the combat can, can depending on what you're doing. I can't take a long time. Character yeah, creation is a little wonky too. Yeah, I, the key to that, what I really liked was the, the source books that were put out where they, you know, they tightened up on, Hey, here are the options available to you. And when you do that, like with Western heroes, it was a lot more manageable, um, to create, to create a character and have the combat be, you know, pretty focused. Cause it wasn't anything goes when we, when I played heroes, which I did play a couple of times, um, uh, when just the whole book was available for, for everybody, it was, it was kind of all over the place. Still fun. Still really fun. We also played a, um, a uh, a uh, Amber from the Roger uh, yeah. Zelazny books, and like uh, all of our characters were the like next generation after the books of like the kids from different um, what do they call them that when they walk through shadows to, the, we were like the, the kids of the main characters from different shadows all with our own agendas and things like that that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it definitely showed a lot of flexibility and being able to run anything from from fantasy to superhero to sci-fi to western. Um, I think you know, and now I think there's probably a lot of things that could be done to to make it more streamlined. Because I think, you know, I think in this, unless we we go back to using apps and things like that to to help with the math, it's it just doesn't make sense to be pulling out all these fractions and looking up charts and having to put things in spreadsheets, you know, I think, I think the, you know, what I would love to see is the mechanics and just somebody simplifying, keeping the mechanics, uh, the 3d six, but just simplifying and not having everything so granular, like, 
great, you know, like it's like range modifiers, minus one per three inches, but you can upgrade to minus one per four inches or minus one per five inches. It's like, do we really need that much granularity? <laughs> like, so, oh, looks like you're frozen, Eric. Oh, that was weird. Yeah, zoom, zoom hiccup. I've never seen it do that before. Oh, really? Uh, it does it to me probably once a week. Okay, so I guess what we said rehashing. Well, I'll spice it together. So instead of rehashing the uh, the glories of of the champion days and ways we can uh, we can fix a system that um, very few people are playing anymore. Um, so what? So you've written some adventures. So what are the adventures that you've written? So uh, back in the Stormlord days, we uh, so Carl and I were the two parts of Stormlord Publishing, and we wrote a series of. Um, Zines, uh, and then uh, some full-size modules. Uh, the, the Treasure Vaults of Zadabad was kind of the big one, um, and it was a really a adventure slash setting module, very inspired by Isle of Dread and, yeah. and some other things. Uh, we initially wrote that for Dungeon Crawl Classics. That's kind of how I got my start. Was um, Dungeon Crawl Classics really pulled me into the OSR, like reinvigorated my interest in D and um, with some like un- unique spin, writing, art. Um, and an openness to having third-party publishers write stuff. And so I uh, kind of got in that community, got to know some of the people who were creating there, met Carl, started writing. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then after that had some success, we came out with a, uh, a zine um, that was a Western, speaking of Western hero, um, a Western spin on DCC called Black Powder, Black Magic. And that was pretty successful. I think we put out five issues of that. Um, and like kind of our, our angle was all the zine was all like, uh, a high level of, of quality, right? So like top quality paper, crap yeah. cover, um, really good art. Um, Todd McGowan was our artist. So we had like a consistent, um, thematic art throughout it. And, uh, it was, um, DCC was great for that because we could take all the feats and the luck dice and all that and kind of convert it into a Western, you know, um, feel we kind of recreated the character classes so that it could at the time there was this very very like um um the zeitgeist of dct was like a lot of zines were coming out with different genres there was like a gamma world one and a apocalypse one and a star warsy you know high tech so it a horror um uh and so like you know like uh dimension hopping type of games were pretty regular you could bring a character from whatever you wanted um and then the great fun of that, we had a tremendous fun with writing the patrons, which in most in DCC, your magic character, your get their power from patrons. And so like, it would be like, you know, um, uh, was it Noggle or whatever from Lankmar or, um, these various, like, you know, high level wizard Merlin was a patron in one of the books, but we had all of the like mythic, um, legends from Americana, you know, like Paul Bunyan and, um, uh, John Henry, you know, Johnny Appleseed were our patrons. So it was a tremendous amount of fun writing up those patrons for that, uh, for that work. Yeah. And I, and that's not something I've done. I do have DCC. I've played, made it a little bit at the conventions, but, uh, it sounds like, um, that's where a lot of the, the, the interest is, is that it's not just a simple, you know, with with other RPGs where it doesn't really matter who you, who your deity is, all it really 
matters. I guess maybe in older editions, maybe you you get certain domains, or I don't know what would all benefit you in three point five. But I would imagine giving an extra spell or whatever uh, for that domain. But it, it does appear that the that Goodman Games has really tried to create a special um, feel to that's much more distinct than the the typical D and D experience with a lot of the mechanics that that they have that they use, including the uh, the the uh, patrons. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely chock full of flavor for sure. Uh, and it was uh, it was very um, not just me. There was a lot of folks who went on to keep writing other stuff and just create things that just kind of got invigorated by that community. So um, it was a lot of just a lot of creative juices flowing around there. Um, it was great. Uh, and then since then, um, I wrote like a few things here and there. We also wrote that treasure vault for swords and wizardry. Um, so we did that conversion. I wrote some other stuff piecemeal here and there. Um, Pete Spawns, the um, Dookie of Vaughn Wall. Um, I have a like an adventure I wrote for him. I would contribute some other things, but kind of got busy with life for about, I don't know, six or seven years there. And then just recently um, started back up writing and publishing. And two things came out relatively recently. The I published under my own imprint, Castellan Publishing. Uh, the Mausoleum Maze of Mondalek the Mad, which is a um, comes out of our Forlorn Shores online campaign that we run out of Audio Dungeon. It's gosh, we probably had a couple hundred people come through there. Which we started that um, after uh, a podcast that I did with Jason and Jose Lacario, uh, all about hex crawls. And so we were talking about hex crawls, and then we were like, "Well, we're going to run this campaign that's putting all this advice we're giving into practice." And um, so I published a, one of the adventure locales there. And that was and then, a great podcast. Yeah, yeah. We we you know we always talk about well, what's next? I think we just kind of ran out of, like we kind of covered the subject, you know. Um, and everything after that was kind of felt like we were forcing it. I think the the, the best episodes. I think you guys did maybe two, and it had to do with random encounter tables and using different dice and and um, methods and how that produces different types of, I guess, results and different feels. It's, those, were, that was, those were both, I think there was two episodes. That, that was probably, I think, that, for me, the highlight of, of, of those podcasts. Yeah, and that's actually right. Like, this is where I believe, if I remember correctly, we did one kind of generically talking about it, and then the other was we actually, I think, took my encounter area from the region that this module was from and talked about, you know, what it would look like, what the monsters were on there. And then, yeah, I'm a big fan of systems in, uh, uh, influencing systems, right? Like that's how for old school play, the way that I like to run it, the way that my whole group really likes to play it and run it is um, I want to be just as surprised as, by what happens as the GM, as the players are. And the way to do that is to have systems that uh, that work with other systems. So the encounter, so it's not just one random encounter table, um, you know, it, it can shift you to another table. Um, what happens because of that table is influenced by another table. So with a few dice rolls, you get nearly infinite combinations. And then well, especially that gives the reaction you the, table, the SPC reaction table yeah. combined with it is what to me adds the mystery. For sure. Yeah. The reaction table. Um, and then even, so we took that even, a, I took it a step further in my regions where um, there would be another column for like, what are they doing? Um, and it could be anything from, you know, the eating or sleeping or camping to praying yeah. to fighting to negotiating. And so 
I would roll like, okay, there's a there's a hundred goblins. Like, what are a hundred goblins doing? Well, they're negotiating with who, you know? So then you roll on the table again, it would be like two giant weasels. It's like what? Like what? You could you if you wrote that, people would say that's contrived, you know? Yeah. So it's like all right, now I gotta figure. Okay, now now real quickly, but you have the basis, right? I don't have to, I don't have to uh, make this up whole cloth. Like I've got most of the way there, and then that's interesting to me as a GM because then I can be like, okay, well, there's something really cool going on here. Um, and, and I don't have to create it ahead of time. And it's, uh, that's the way we played that, that campaign. And we started it with some thinking that people would just go to dungeons. Um, but what, ha- what ended up happening was that everyone was much more interested in exploring. Um, Cause we have experience for exploring hexes. And so, you know, for a long time there, like, no, like people would come across the dungeon. I'd be like, here's a wizard's tower. Like, I don't want to go in that. I want to just go over the hill, you know, and they wanted to go see the next thing really brought back that, um, that feeling of exploration that, that I remember from the early days of D and D, um, having that be more and more of what scratched the itch of the fun for me than, than, um, you know, just doing the combat and getting the goal. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting that, you know, I was listening to a podcast, uh, I, I uh, they were talking about mega dungeons and, um, I think we're talking about the, um, uh, I can't remember what, which one is specifically talking about, but basically how probably through the mega dungeon, the, the players sometimes get, uh, the threats get so large um, that it, then they start engaging with the environment around it. So it becomes, starts becoming less about the mega dungeon and sometimes about the environment. So it's kind of interesting where, you know, Maybe the dungeon becomes too dangerous, and you're like, "Well, let's try some other things for a while." And it's kind of funny how, you know, we could you could go into play thinking what's one thing, but if you're not playing an adventure that's designed for a certain outcome, you know, players get to decide, and and it, it can turn into something completely different nobody expected. Exactly. Yeah, and I and that's um, if I was just going to run dungeons. I don't know that I would still want to play Dungeons and Dragons very often. Um, if there's, or certainly not run it, um, that that doesn't hold a lot of interest for me. Um, the play, what's interesting to me is watching the players engage with the world, and then, even though I created the world, not knowing how the world's going to react 100. percent Right? I have an outline. I have an idea. I know like kind of what the thing, what the big pieces are. Um, the big cogs that are turning in the world or in my region of the world, but, but like where those meet, what, what, what those, where those gears grind and then what happens is, um, you know, uh, I want to be determined by, by both the player's actions, but then also, you know, some removal of me from the situation of just dictating what happens. I want to, um, and, and that's where I think creating those systems that interact with systems is what makes it interesting for me. Yeah, and I think uh, it goes back to even people who who are who author uh, novels, and a lot of times they are also writing to find out. Like some people have everything all planned out, but other people are like, I don't know. I know this thing's going to happen in the end, but I don't know exactly what these these individual characters are going to do. And as they develop, you know, things change. It's kind of the same thing with TV series too, right? There, uh, like one of my favorite uh, drummer from the Expanse. I guess she was going to be a pretty minor character in the series, um, but then she just turned. Everybody said, "Wait a minute, she needs to be a major character." 
And uh, it's like uh, you can't plan that stuff out sometimes. So it's it's best, I guess, to have that kind of the guideline, some sort of some some sort of rails to keep you from going to keep you in a certain direction. But you also need to have the ability to, I guess, for yourself to find out and be surprised. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, she's my favorite character on that <laughs> on that show. <laughs> yes. uh, she's really nailed it for whatever reason. Like I just believe that character, you know. Well, right, because you think how could like a, a a four foot nine? I don't know what she is, but like five foot two, eighty pound person exude martial. Uh, well, martial's not the right word, but the ability to command people. And I then I believed it. So it's like, yeah, a person could do that. It really is about the personality of the person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like, yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, in fact, I think it was not too long. I got caught up in the. I think I've shown somebody some Amos scenes and never watched it. And then I started watching some drummer scenes, especially that big speech she gives. And it was it's episode season five or whatever. And uh, everybody starts uh, pounding on the, on the, on the, uh, on the councils and stuff in reaction to her, to her, while well, she's speaking. And it's like, wow, that is just pretty dramatic. Probably yeah. up there with, with, the, with the big TV, you know, you think of all these big, like Theoden speech and Aragorn speech, you know, that kind of is up there. I think with those, as far as uh, rallying cry. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. Um, I still need to finish. I can't believe I stopped watching that final season. Um, and uh, I, I think it's because I don't want it to ever end in my mind. You know, I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to watch. The, I think I have two episodes left to go or something, and I just I don't watch them. What you can do is apparently they a, took the uh, storyline and uh, continued it in the in some comic books. Uh, they they kickstarted yeah. some graphic novels. Don't know if they yeah, have there's also some books um, that are like in between and other parts of the world. I've downloaded some of those to my Kindle. We were going to start like a book club at my work on Slack about them, and it never took off. But I downloaded them in, in preparation for that. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. I, I think to me that is was the probably the greatest um, sci-fi TV series to exist. <laughs> yeah, well, and the rumor is, I don't know how true it is, but that it started as the uh, RPG campaign. That's where the uh, the writers uh, developed the characters. Yeah, I think they pretty much admitted, admitted to that. I think I saw it. I don't know that it's necessarily one for one, but I think it definitely was the, um, you know, was the, the kernel or the, the seed from which a lot of this had done. And so that's, in fact, uh, I got an RPG setting called Scoundrels. And it's for uh, Traveler, but the idea, you know, what, what I've noticed, it seemed like with Star Wars, um, that it's like they just planet hop, right? It's just one planet after another, after another, after mm-hmm. another. But you watch The Expanse, it's like there is so much you can go on in one solar system. Like, why do you even need to be jumping from planet to planet or solar system to solar system throughout the universe? It's like, it's like... Yeah. Yeah, no, that's um that's definitely the cinematic versus the kind of like novel type approach, which is um also another link to like RPGs. I remember reading a story about Star Wars RPG when that came out, like Bill Slavisek, which is like a local guy to me. Um and uh what was it West End Games got the license for that. It was kind of in the doldrums of Star Wars. They hadn't come yeah. out with it was in between maybe the maybe Jedi uh, Empire and Jedi 
and there was no plan like to do anything with Star Wars, so they sold the the RPG license and they got the the canon what do they call it the the buy the Bible whatever they when they talk about the world building thing that yeah. they do in movies. And when they got it, it was nothing there. Like it was only like Lucas had only written what you see on the screen. Like he didn't think outside the the camera hardly at all. Like yeah. the, like the the characters in the cantina were just named Hammerhead and Snaggletooth and like like there was no like what is this thing? Where is it from? It's like we can't write an RPG where just there's a a race of people called Snaggletooth, you know. And so those guys wrote a ton of uh of backstory to the star Wars universe that a lot of it or some of it, at least is still Canon today. Like they actually adopted into the, um, in, into the Canon, but like that idea of like, you know, he was filming a movie, so you didn't need to know what was past the forest of Endor. Like you just needed to know they were riding bikes through a forest or that Tatooine was a desert world. Like there was no reason to have a backstory to any of that stuff. If you didn't see it on the screen. No, it's kind of like the sets. They don't need to extend other than what the camera sees. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, and I don't think there were any, other than like some Alan Dean Foster, like Splinter of the Mind's Eye, I don't think there was any other or much in far as, as far as Star Wars uh, novelizations or fiction before then. So I think that all was before that took off. So I think, you know, what they created was not just for the movies, but for comic books and novels. I mean, it, it was, you know, for for Star Wars fans, they probably didn't realize just what a boom that was. Yeah, absolutely. And I I love that game. Um, the system wasn't awesome, um, but the uh, I had a lot of fun playing Star Wars. Well, now they call it Star Wars D Stick, but West End Games Star Wars RPG um, was a blast. So I was. I'm not sure that it's kind of interesting. You know, there's a friend of mine that we compared um, games that we played in our youth and we could name all these games. But I was surprised at how little overlap there is. I've never played the star Wars D six. I don't know. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure how, I don't know if it's the timing. Maybe I was getting out of the hobby about that time, but uh, I know a lot of people, a lot of people love the system. So, um, but I've not heard somebody say they like the game, but, but uh, didn't like the system. So what was it in, in particular about the Star Wars D6 system that you did not find uh, worked well for you? Uh, the, the system, like the, how characters were made using it was fine. The actual mechanics of combat and stuff like that was really just, um, it's just poorly implemented. Um, it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't as, especially the first version of the game, they came out with a second edition that cleaned up a lot of it. Um, but it was a lot of, um, uh, you know, you shoot and then the other person has to roll a dodge or something like that. And, and it just kind of like ground to a halt, um, slowed things down. The starship combat part was, which huge part of star Wars, uh, wasn't really well done. You kind of had a transition over to, they had a, um, they had an actual, combat game called star warriors that they put out you kind of had to like you if you really wanted to get granular about ship fighting you had to use that but that was very granular it was more of a war game which i love but um you know so it wasn't uh it just didn't flow real good and um yeah those are my main main issues with it it there were other systems out at the time that i think would have been um 
you know, would it be easier to use more of a, a 2D6 skill-based system or something like that? Um, it had it had it suffered a little bit from the dice pooliness of like Shadowrun uh, and how much that can slow down the game when you're like you know adding dice, taking dice out, stuff like that. I believe they also, if I if I understand correctly, they also explode. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. Pretty sure. I don't even remember to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, it's so I think theoretically, it, like you can use a pistol and you can blow up a moon if if it's yeah, possible. it's definitely yeah, it's that kind of a. <laughs> They definitely do in Shadowrun, which is the problem with that, which, you know, I probably should pimp the other book that I wrote recently, which is a retro clone of, of Shadowrun, um, to solve exactly that problem. It's like, hey, I really like the genre. I really like the way this game flows, but how can we do mechanics um, that facilitate that better? Um, and so, yeah, that's so the... Uh, what was the retro clone called? Uh, it's called Wet Wired. Um, and, uh, fire Ruby games published it. I wrote it. And, um, the guy, he, uh, British guy, he does warlock and warp star. And his spin on it is, um, uh, ret- their retro clones of like early British work, uh, tabletop gaming, like, um, uh, early war or warhammer fantasy role playing. And then what's the other one fighting fantasy or something like that. Yeah. And it's a the really great innovative systems and, uh, we were playing, uh, I was running a Warlock game for my friends, uh, and it was set in like a pseudo-historical fantasy version of the Holy Roman Empire, and they were kind of like city people, like doing like various things in like the Hansa area of like northern Germany. Um, and I realized that I was running this game, and I stole a lot of the backdrop of the game from um, uh, uh, Dan, I forget his last name, but over at uh, uh, Professor Dungeon Master from Dungeon Craft. Yeah, and and I kind of like copied his um, failed society, reviled society at least the start, and then it went off the rails. But I realized that that I was like, well, we're running this like a Shadowrun game, um, but it's medieval Germany, and so I was like, well, let me see if I can like rewrite these rules. And I started doing that, and then I realized like I'm not just writing house rules here. I've basically rewritten the whole rule book. So I contacted Greg Saunders at Fire Ruby and said, hey, can I license this IP from you? And he said, well, no, I don't license the IP, but I'll publish it if it's any good. And so I sent it to him, and he published it. So that was like whirlwind. I, th- I wrote it in like a week, and then, we, and then when he said he was going to publish it, I was like, oh, well, I better really actually play test this thing. So, <laughs> um, so we actually started playing it, and uh, I took it to North Texas RPG Con, and we uh, had like an open table there where we had some other people roll through and give advice and uh, tightened it up the editing a little bit, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was the quickest thing I ever wrote. I mean, it was a couple of weeks and then it was published. Well, I'm looking at the wet wired. It, it seems, I thought it was kind of interesting. The, it seems like it's pretty well received except the, uh, I guess people are getting worked up about the, uh, the AI art. I saw it. Oh yeah. That's been quite a kerfluffle. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't make that choice, so. Um, but I've been <laughs> don't kind of you. don't set fire to you. <laughs> kind of watching, uh, watching that from afar and seeing the reactions, and it's been and then people reaching out to me and and giving their reactions. It's been interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it it's actually like a it's a really interesting inflection point in the hobby. There's a lot of feelings about it. Um, but it's also uh, you know. It is, a, it is a reality that's facing publishing, and uh, you know, there's forces at work that just aren't, you know, time will tell, I think, on, on what happens. Um, 
you know, I went the other direction with, with the, with my publishing, the last thing I published Mosley and Mays, and it is art heavy. I've got a Peter Mullen cover. I bought the painting. I'm looking at the painting right above the screen as the original painting that Peter did. Um, Stefan Pogue, uh, I, he, he does like eight pieces in there. Todd McGowan, Craig Brasco. Um, I'm so underwater in that book from art. Like I'll never break even, but I wanted it to look how I wanted it to look. So I've, I've literally in the span of two months published, well, I didn't publish the one, but been a part of these two ends of that spectrum. Um, like, like in the same moment. Um, so it's pretty interesting to see, uh, kind of both the business side of it and what those realities look like the emotional side. Cause I, some of those artists are my friends and how they feel about it and just seeing the, uh, the reactions. I, you know, I don't know, I don't have any answers there, but, um, it's definitely a subject that is going to, going to come up. So I guess, yeah, cause that probably would have been prime for, for, so I guess the question is, um, so is for future Kickstarter or for the future publications is kickstarting off the table for you? Um, you know, it's, it's on the table. If I, if I have a partner who's going to do all the work, <laughs> which is what, um, when I was working with Stormlord, Carl, my partner there was his day job was he did marketing and PR for a company that, um, you know the, uh, the the chicken soup for the blank book that were really popular about yeah. 15 years ago. Like like that that guy's their main client. Like they do all the PR for that guy, um, and a bunch of other like actual like real book writers and stuff. So he was an expert at all that marketing stuff, and he did all that stuff, you know. And then I just did the creative stuff, the writing, the game mechanics. So it was a great partnership. Um, yeah, I'm not interested in like. Figuring, I'm not interested in learning a whole other business model. Um, that's my day job, and I don't want to do it for fun. Right. Uh, so, um, yeah, I would probably never do it myself. But you know, never say never. I don't. Who knows? The uh, you talk about the chicken soup for the blank soul. I, I just, you know, I, always, I hear things and I think that would be a fun product. That that would be. I don't know how you do it, but I think that would be a great RPG product, you know, like a chicken soup for the necromancer's soul, or chicken soup for the <laughs> yeah, the yeah soul. Books, right? Yeah, and then didn't come and just up have with it something. all be like how to play different ways to play the character, different ideas for what their motivations are. Yeah, you're right. That would or be maybe great. Just, or just even stories that are that are maybe uplifting to a necromancer. <laughs> maybe you could take a, a actual book and just ape it. You know, and say, yeah. well, what if this is chicken soup for the mother's soul? And that would be, you know, you'd write it as a as a necromancer at that point. And then you take AI, the same story. sounds like a chat GPT prompt in the making, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah it, it, you, that really would be, it really would be, it would be kind of interesting uh, if you, yeah, it, I mean, yeah, one I don't have the time. Two, I don't. Um, I don't necessarily want to invest. No, I would. I would. That would be fun, and especially if it's illustrated. You know, uh, uh, chicken soup for the deep one's soul, or chicken soup for. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You could just keep going, right? I mean, literally, it's an inexhaustible supply. 
Yeah, it's, it's like Beanie Babies. Just keep doing it until the market just suddenly just implodes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that market's hot now. I mean, that's kind of been the uh, – with the, the, the 5e revolution or whatever that is, um, the multitude of different types of characters seems to have been the – one of the things that people took off on, uh, which I know a lot of old grognards complain about, probably me too, is the dragonborns and the tieflings and the Asimars and the, all the different crazy things. It's like, it, you know, it's back in my day, it, in the second edition, it was the splat books for the character classes. Like, how many different kinds of fighters can we jam in here, each one with a, with a more powerful trait uh, than the last, with the, um, uh, the, the original splat books, you know? And uh, I forget what they were called, but the brown, slim brown books for second Is it edition. the complete? The complete, yeah, the complete series. And it seems like now that's the kind of the, the current um, iteration of that is the, the new races, right, um, with different abilities that are, um, you know, uh, we would consider probably like, what do you mean? You have a, you're playing a dragon? You can fly at first level? That's crazy, right? That's the a, that's a third-level wizard spell. Um, but, uh, yeah, you can just keep doing that, you know, chicken soup for the tiefling soul. <laughs> yeah I'll, i need to find i need to find first thing i come up with the idea that that would be a good structure then i gotta find somebody to write it so i guess we'll I'll, I'll put a writer's call out there for chicken soup stories yeah there you go <laughs> but i kind of wonder too it's like then I, I guess the zine format works perfect for that definitely yeah i think uh that was another great moment in um kind of the the OSR, the emergence of third-party publishing was the zines. Everybody was doing zines, and it was great. Um, there's something about them that uh, stirs creativity. You want to read them. You get, uh, I get, I read them, and then I get creative after reading them. Um, really, something about that different than a full-size book or a uh, or you know a module type format, the traditional format. Well, and that's what really. I revolutionized my thinking. I mean, I never really, really thought about publishing until all of a sudden I was introduced to the concept of a zine, and it's like, oh, I could do that. Like, yeah, it's achievable, right? That was exactly, exactly. In fact, it's gone to the point that I will, for work or even at home, if I need to take notes, I will take about five sheets of computer paper and fold it in half, and use it as a format for taking notes. It's nice, like, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, so I, it's it's permeated in many aspects of my life. Uh, so it's just, uh, but I find it's it's uh, and, and it's also interesting too. It's like, you know, the word counts not necessarily that much different than an eight by ten because they are eight and a half by eleven. But because a lot of times they use wide margins and, and so forth. But yet somehow conceptually, it seems very approachable to do. No, I totally agree. Yeah, and it is. You know, it's not. It's not like some special format paper. It, you know, it's a printer paper folded in half. You know, and if you get really fancy with it, like you know, we did with the Black Powder Black Magic, you get the special state. Well, we didn't get it. Carl had it, right? He worked for a company that did stuff like this, produced professional marketing material. So we were really lucky. We had the special trimmers that, um, like pro level trimmers that made it all even, and stapler that was a hundred percent in the exact place it needed to be every time. Uh, he even had a special tool that folded the craft cover. I mean, it was uh, it was great. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking that I'm getting close to the age where I can retire, but I can't retire. I still need to make money. Um, but I there are some local printers. <laughs> so I thought, 
I wonder if I could go work for a printer and get really steep discounts on my printing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what I call all of this stuff is like I'm just setting myself up for a retirement job. Um, you know, not that it'll ever be, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what form it's going to take, but, uh, um, you know, something like that I can do when I retire that's fun, but, you know, it's also a job, right? I don't, I don't want to just like not do anything. Um, that's not a good, not a good, uh, I don't think recipe for living. It is not. We need to have a reason for uh, existence and, uh, yeah. And besides just the, 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 the high level, you know, whatever that is, but there's still the fundamental day to day, you know, we are, we are, um, it's, it's kind of interesting. The, uh, there was the, um, in the story in Genesis of, of Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, various theologians, including Dorothy Sayers, who wrote a bunch of, uh, of, um, interesting, um, um, articles as far as, uh, thoughts on this, but the idea is, and I think it's kind of true in the idea that one aspect is man is made for work. And then Dorothy Thayer says, no, the idea is that, uh, that people are by fundamental creators and it's the act of creation. And it's like, it's kind of interesting that in a sense, there is something innate about people for whatever reason uh, to work and to create. And whatever yeah, that no, creation I totally is. Agree. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. Where... There's a death that happens when you don't do that. You know, so so many it's, uh, so many people that retire and um, don't have anything else. You know, it's like it's less so now. I think because people are diversified in in the things that they do. But like older generations, where literally they only lived a couple years after retirement, and I think that's a big part of it, right? Because they didn't have they were very one dimensional, right? Like you're a postman or you're this or you're that, and then when you're done doing that like well then now you're nothing um there was death by oprah yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah yeah. just watch oprah all day long i I think of mr mom too uh you know that tv uh that movie where you know he oh god i must have watched that a bazillion times it was like when we first got cable that was one of the three movies they had on playing you know one after the other after the other yeah, so it's it's. Uh, I think that's just it. And whether I mean, I don't know that it has to be anything elaborate. Not everybody has to create, you know, whatever. But boy, we just need to be have a reason for for doing things each day. For sure. No, I totally agree. Yeah, I got a lot of them in the hopper too. Um, I probably, um, although most of my creative efforts end up that people see are in the RPG realm. Um, the majority of my gaming time is actually miniature wargaming focused as opposed to RPG. And uh, uh, I've ended up converting my basement, which is a pretty decent sized basement, into a ridiculously stocked um, uh, wargame uh, uh, room. I have multiple wargame tables down there, shelving, terrain, miniatures, um, just moving, you know, really gotten into the terrain crafting side of things. Um, and so much though, like I really considered, um, doing like a YouTube channel on that, but I just, uh, again, that's this whole new, new media thing where you have to be, you don't just have to be good. You don't just have to be interesting. You have to be prolific, you know, constantly putting out content and that that's a real job. Like a lot of these guys are doing that. They literally don't do anything else or 
they do a job and then that's and then this and that's like the whole rest of their life. That's just a little too much commitment for me. Well, if you're wanting to monetize with YouTube, that is the case. If you're not wanting to monetize with YouTube, then it's less so. Yeah. But uh, but but the thing is, it's like you know, going back to um, I don't. Uh, it's not my thing, but um, for the most part, but uh, was it ASMR videos? Yeah. But I found one thing that is an ASMR style video for me is watching somebody turn wood. There's something about watching somebody with a lathe. I can just yeah. like watch that. And that just <laughs> rise. Like, I got to turn this off. I'm gonna be here all day. <laughs> yeah, that's me with a a Proxon foam cutter. Yeah. You know, I can watch people milling down foam for castle bricks and tricks on how to do that, and very similar. You know, it's like the, uh, it's very much like the uh, what were the, um, I want to say with our home improvement, but like the the Yankee, like the when we were kids, like the this old house and the old yeah. Yankee workshop and uh, Bob Vila and there was a bunch of guys like that, and um, just like you know, watching them do something, like you're never going to like um, rehab a you know a a New England salt and pepper, what do they call it? Salt shaker, salt box house, you know, yeah. like I don't need to know how to raise the foundation, but like, you know, right. I'm never going to do that, but it's interesting to watch. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think, you know, that may be what you could also do is just, you know, some people just, they do a thing and they're, they're talking while they do it. And some people like, you know, even like with this podcast, there's people who just enjoy listening to this in the background and they'll be doing things. So it's like, you know, it could be a lot of things that way where people would, you could spend two hours just just blah blah blahing while you're you're making terrain and people have it up on a TV and look up every now and then and and enjoy yeah. it. Yeah. So. For sure. Yeah, that's what I do. Like my setup down down in the uh, crafting area is just podcast after podcast. In fact, I don't really listen or watch or anything like that unless I'm doing that. So it's like catch up time, right? It's like, you know, oh good, I've got five episodes of this thing to to listen to. What's also kind of interesting is I had a listener, um, a listener, I don't, I don't want to call people. There's a person on YouTube who sent me a message stating, you know, your video resolutions are, are, are not good. You need to up it to a higher resolution. And I never really thought about anybody watching on a TV. So, I don't know, like, but... But I did, and, I, and it's like I, I don't really realize that all the ways that people consume things, and, and including watching, you know, stuff like this on TV, which it actually blew my mind. Like, I, it was a category I could not, I, could, I would not even thought of. I think I just think of people watching on their phones or just putting on a background on their on their on their uh, uh, browser. But no, people people do enjoy. Um, having, you know, things on TV, whether they're, they're actually staring at it all the time or not, but who knows? That could be your opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, I've, uh, I've definitely uh, considered it. I've also considered really, there's some that I, most of them are done very poorly, um, but some are decent and depends on the game is um, like actual play for war games, particularly where the miniature war games, because there's, there's a visual tactile element to it. Like, um, whereas like RPG games, it's like, just, you know, I've seen a few of those. I can't get into watching people play D and D, which I know is really big, um, especially with a critical role. But, um, I, I that, that is just like beyond, uh, uh, not interesting to me. Um, but you know, with the war game element where you're looking at the miniatures and you're looking at the terrain, um, that's interesting during COVID, 
Uh, I run a little, con- we call it a convention off con, but um, it's for a few of my friends from all over who come in and um, we obviously couldn't do it the COVID summer. And uh, so I actually set up my basement. I had a sand, I used to have a sand table down there. Um, I've since split it, but, and I rigged the whole basement up with cameras and we, we played chain mail virtually, um, which was pretty cool. Um, and in fact, it created some, um, what at first were challenges, but ended up being like defining moments, um, because you couldn't reach out and move the miniatures. Uh, everyone had to do written orders. And so I set up a Google spreadsheet that split out into the good guys and the bad guys. They all wrote their orders in, and then I was the referee, and my dad was helping me. And then we would read the orders and then just execute them to the best of our ability based on what was written. But there was no back and forth. No one could say, no, no, I didn't mean for that. I meant left, not right. Or we wrote left. So that was the order you gave to your orcs. So the orcs are going left, and if you meant for them to go right, give better orders next time. And, um, and it, so it created a whole other level to the game. That ended up being the most fun part of the game. But what you did is you recreated the play-by uh, mail um, or even <laughs> games of the eighties, seventies. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Yeah. Or the or the, um, the the you know going back to the early days of Kriegspiel, right? Which was like the early or beginning of wargaming, which was in Prussian military academies, and it was it was they stimulated the fog of war by that, like. You had to write your orders down, and then a, a, another officer would execute them to the best of his ability based on those orders, and that was exactly how it would be in the field. So that was part of the game, um, which, of course, to them was deadly serious, but you know, the game that evolved out of it, and it was really fun, and, and so much so that um, I've tried to incorporate bits of that even when people are sitting around the table um, to add that extra element, that fog of war, or that randomization to what you want to have happen. Yeah. And that is hard to, and that's kind of interesting too, because it's, 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 you know, I think from what I've heard is that, you know, looking back in history, we make a lot of assumptions that, that, that we make judgments, but people going through those situations, things weren't clear. Like we have the ability to look back in time and understand the full situation, but as things are unfolding, they don't see the whole the whole picture, and it, it does definitely create a different type of. You say if you're able to hide things, it's it's kind of I guess some ways easier to do now, maybe harder to do. I don't know, but uh, but you're right. That, I don't know. Good. I mean, look at some recent examples in our you know very recent talking about COVID, right? Yeah. Like we were all in the middle of that, and everybody was wrong about something. That's for damn sure. Like like, <laughs> and and you know, and time will only tell as time goes on. I think it's gonna you know it's going to be even like, it's going to be more. So uh, yeah, it seems like we have this bird's eye view of the world, but we don't, you know? Um, And certainly, you know, in the path, they didn't either, especially in conflict. Um, You know, they, they didn't, um, we, I I could probably get in the military. We probably actually passed through the time period where we knew the most about conflict. I think we're actually going the other direction now because you've got with asymmetrical warfare and information, misinformation, disinformation, like in Ukraine, I don't think anybody has any idea what's actually going on over there. Uh, it's it's completely obfuscated um, between propaganda and and permanent, you know, purposeful um, ob- obfuscation of what's going. Like I have no clue, um, and I kind of work in that area for a living, and 
I have no idea what's going on there. Um, and so if you look back at like uh, like this, the, the Civil War or some period like that, you can't see over the next hill. You know, you're trying to move tens of thousands of people over over terrain on the on the written reports of scouts. You know, I, I mean, my God, it's amazing they ever found each other at all um, to get into a fight. And so, uh, and then and then almost every battle hinged on somebody making a mistake because they misunderstood something. Like almost every battle. Well, it's kind of interesting uh, reading Paul. Paul Johnson's got the um, wrote a history book um, about modern times, and his take was, you know, we think everything was kind of just thought out, but a lot of things just they just happened, and people were surprised when they did happen. It's just like the these things unfolded in ways that nobody foresaw, or or so somebody who, who foresaw or. You know, they just tried something and it just worked, and everybody's shocked. Like, how'd that happen? And it was sometimes even more about who is the least comp or who is the who is the least incompetent, not who is the most competent. For sure, yeah. Napoleon's famous line is, uh, "Well, many one of his many if, if he said, but the point is, uh, never interrupt your enemy when when he's in the process of making a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like it's because you don't have to do the right thing; you just have to not do the wrong thing, right? Yeah, yeah." Yeah, and there's a there's a Napoleon movie coming out too. I'm eagerly anticipating it. In fact, I've uh I've been speaking of YouTube, binge watching like uh docu series on Napoleon, and uh, even rewatched uh, Waterloo, uh, the uh, Rod Steiger. Um, when was that? Like the '60s, maybe that was made something like that. I don't know. It was very good, very good. Um, been watching a bunch of uh kind of period dramas from Napoleonic. Some of the sharp series. So I'm not. I don't do a lot of research or reading. But there was probably about 15 years ago. I did a, a fair amount of reading on Napoleon at the time, and it it just showed just how much the modern world was created because of Napoleon's direct and indirect actions. Like it's he changed the whole world based on what he was doing. Yeah, yeah, he's one of the one of the main like focus points of. So I was a history major in college, and there's kind of like the competing um, theories of historiography. There's the great man versus social forces, right? Like, so what actually makes things happen? Is it individuals who like, you know, enforce their will and change things, or is it social forces like, um, you know, hey, this was probably going to happen anyway. This is just the guy who happened to be the president or the whatever at the oh, time. Oh, right, right. Napoleon's one of those guys that's like, you know, I mean, it was the, the things he did changed the world in like huge ways, almost like it's never really happened before. Um, I mean, yes, there were social forces there, like the, um, you know, kind of the uh, emerging modern and uh, industrial slash economics, right, in competing with old monarchical, you know, there's demo- emerging democracy, republicanism, enlightenment, all that stuff, but even well past that, I mean, he, he made the whole world dance to his tune, that's for sure. Well, there was, you know, like, you know, like Louisiana Purchase was because Napoleon needed money and build ships, and and he, he just went in and just started smacking around Spain and Portugal, which gave South America the ability to rise up against their oppressors. I mean, it's just like, it just goes on and on and on. And you're right, all those things would have happened eventually, but, but the actions he took just 
created many changes. And they were talking about codification of laws, the unification of Germany as a, as a country and Italy. It's just like all sorts of crazy things that we take for granted. The way the maps look is just, you know, from, from this, this person's rule and his interactions with the, with his neighbors. Yeah. I mean, and not to mention like really spreading enlightenment principles, you know, is, I don't think because he was necessarily an enlightened person or really gave a crap about the revolution, but that's what allowed him to rise to power. And then just by conquering all the way across Europe, he basically spread those principles, you know, um, he knocked down ghettos, you know, in cities when he found them, because it was, you know, what is it? Fraternité, Egalité, whatever the French revolution model is like, well, you know, that was the, the system that let him rise to power. So that kind of trailed along behind him, even though it was kind of a mess in France with the, the terror and things like that. It, you know, it spread those principles to like the, every, every city and every country across Europe. And that couldn't be undone even when you undone, undid Napoleon. Um, and so, you know, how that changed what well beyond his lifetime and, um, sped up those principles across the Western world, certainly in Europe is, uh, you know, you can't really, can't really put a, a a value on that. No. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just it's kind of interesting, and I think it's it's kind of interesting. I think it seems like traditional U.S. treatment of him by you know is is a comedic character. You know the the short man who has his hand yeah. in his, his shirt and his his coat and and uh, is just you know, a, 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 I guess a person of, of, of being not very, um, um, capable, but yeah, it's like, it's completely the opposite of who he was. It's like, in fact, yeah, my great regret is this was probably 30, maybe, yeah, 30 years ago, I was in an antique store and they had this crazy, crazy portrait of Napoleon and it was huge. It was huge. It's, it's, I forget what they call it where they really uh, scrape. Um, they, 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 um, for prints, they would, they would cut into, is it like some sort of stone? Uh, what's that called? Is it lithograph? But anyway, mm. just amazing, amazing, you know, 19th century print. And my wife's like, I am not having that face staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> that's my only regret. I think big regret in life. Is I did not buy that, 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 Portrait of Napoleon. It was just intense. It was intense. Um, <laughs> that's oh, great. Oh yeah, well, that's it. You need 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 a space for that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and the space would be in my wife's work. Well, she didn't say this, but not my house. So she's very indulgent right. for me to other things. But she's yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, that's that's funny. <laughs> yeah, the, the bragging rights that nobody else would really care about. But anyway, um, but that's very cool. So your your latest adventure. So maybe you could. Say that. What's the what's the name of the the latest OSR adventure? Yeah, the Mausolean Maze of Mandulak the Mad. Yeah, it's a terrible title. I was told it was a terrible title by other publishers, but I don't care. I like it. Um, uh, probably easier way to find it is on Drive Through RPG. Just look for Castellan Publishing. Sure enough, uh, there it that's is. That's my imprint. So, yeah, but it's a it's an OSD um, compatible with you know all of the old school kind of versions. Uh, it's a, the MacGuffin of it is, is the hedge maze. Um, that was the kind of the central dungeon in my forlorn shores region, um, that I ran. And the interesting thing about it is that it changes, right? So when the players came back, it wasn't always how they left it. Um, and of course there's a, 
there's a secret to it that you can unlock, but it's not, um, it, it's not, uh, the big principle that I've tried to pursue with both that, that game. And then this module is, um, my friend Gabor Lux, uh, who's a fantastic publisher. Everything he does is gold. Um, uh, has this, uh, he calls it the good vanilla and it's the idea. And I, this isn't exactly his spin on it, but I take, this is my spin on it is I want to take vanilla fantasy and make it interesting so that you can use it in your campaign without having to like change your campaign world. Right. I'm not going to give you anything that is going to mess up what, what you, what you're running for the most part, right. Within a, within a pretty wide tolerance. Um, a lot of grape I have with published material is to be interesting. They take things and they change the cosmology. They change the, the way the world works for their little mega dungeon or their little region. And so if you're running a campaign where you're trying to put these things in there because you don't want to constantly create all your own stuff, it becomes a patchwork that doesn't feel like anything. Or you get halfway through the module and I, I'm picking on James from with Dwimmer Mount for this. And you realize that he's just changed the way dwarves exist, right? Right. It's like, well, wait a minute. That that wasn't like this dwarf's been is fifth level, and all of a sudden now he finds out that you know dwarves are made from mud or something, and it's like, well, that's that doesn't fit with my world. So now I either have to like retcon that or just say, oh no, it's just in this just in this dungeon, and then it doesn't. There's you lose all that verisimilitude. So. Um, anyway, that was my spiel. That was like my design element with this. I was like, I want it to be um, fun and interesting, an interesting locale that provides the players with a lot of challenges. They can come back to over time, over the course of a campaign, and I'm not going to screw with the rest of the world. That's kind of like the uh, the, the MacGuffin for it. Well, it's only $15 on uh, drive-thru. Yeah, the, I, need the to, I need cover. to... That's right. Go out and buy it, people. I need to make back that that Mullen painting money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you want to see more, more Mullen paintings, you need to That's you need right. to be supporting this. So yeah, so you can get the uh, you can get the soft cover. Oh, I see. Then the then the PDF and the soft cover. It would be twenty dollars. So it's still very reasonable. Yeah, yeah very... it is. Even if you think my writing's garbage, um, there's amazing. Some really is amazing art in there. Some of Stefan's work, he, he squeezed me in between some real jobs that he had. And some of the stuff he came up with, I was like, the one, the, uh, the fool um, in there is just, is just creepy. I mean, amazing. Um, he, he just gave life to the, to the image that I painted with my words. And it's, uh, it's one of my favorite things in there. He and Craig the Brasco does an amazing two panel of a skeletal knight charging a, a demonic Quintain. Yeah. Um, it's really, really good stuff in there. Who did your layout? Uh, Glenn seal. Oh my God. Yeah. How could I not mention Glenn? So Glenn did all the maps, which his maps are amazing. Yeah. Um, he's a uh, monkey blood. Uh, it's his like imprint that he publishes a lot of stuff. He did the Midterlands stuff, which is awesome. Um, so he did all my maps and he did all my layout too. So I have used, uh, Glenn, um, he did one map for uh, it's in, in uh, Scoundrels of Brixton, but I've also had him commission to do some other maps for something in development. But uh, I will just say, Glenn is good people. He is a pleasure to deal with. His rates are reasonable. They're right there on his website. He's he's uh, very good at communication. So 
It's yeah, I mean, all the people I work with in this book were amazing. Uh, Glenn is just like such a professional. It's uh, not always what you get in the RPG publishing hobby, right? Um, and because uh, it is a hobby to a lot of folks, and it you know they do it on their spare time when they you know after work and family and all that stuff. But Glenn was just amazing. Like he turned stuff around immediately. Stefan was amazing. Like I said, squeezed me, squeezed in two different contracts for me in between real work he was doing and just knocked them out in days. Um, it was, it was great. It was a, it was a really good experience. Yeah. And I believe I could be wrong, but I believe Glenn's doing this full time. I found, I used to run the theory that people who are full-time artists or whatever are more reliable than the people who are doing it part-time. But then, um, I just found from a full-time artist that he just flaked on me just as, as much as the part-time people. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think like, uh, you're probably right in that theory, like across the aggregate, yeah. but there are still individuals right on both ends of that, right. Who can skew that skew the numbers for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if I read between the lines of this guy, he, he, uh, he, he was on a much bigger job doing something, making more money, but you know, why yeah. for the last month and a half, could he not have just responded? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like getting a contractor for your house, right. They're all ready to, to, they're 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 ready to get started and they they love you and then until the week they're supposed to show up and they have two other clients and they keep leaving your job to do the other job and <laughs> you know yeah it, I could have understood that I just kind of got ghosted for for some unknown reason it was weird it was weird but anyway but that's 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 the that's the exotic life of of being a publisher is uh, is um, learning how to navigate these things yeah then, it's not for the faint of heart there's a lot of uh, <laughs> there there is a lot of uh, uh, pitfalls and stuff like that. You it definitely, you got to love it first. And like I said, it's not, not something I would recommend that you decide to do for a living. So, yeah, I've said before, and I've tell other people, it's like, I, you know, as far as uh, the amount of money that I make per the amount of time I put in, I'd be better off working part-time at Lowe's. Oh yeah, for sure. I'd be better <laughs> off just not doing anything. Standing still and breathing would be, I would, I would lose less money than I do on the, the publishing. I've, I've been pretty fortunate, and uh, and uh, I think Kickstarter and uh, maybe turn you on to a couple people uh, or some people. Um, I re- highly recommend Kickstarting. That, that I that that's the only reason I've been able to achieve the the even the small level of success is is strictly through Kickstarter. And there's yeah like yeah no that. I mean you're definitely right um, for sure if I. Uh, well, and so, you know, the experience that I had is we kick-started this project called the Zine Vault. So we had been we doing these zines, and everybody was always saying, like, there's how do you store your zines, right? Because uh, there's no real good way to do it. So we were like, well, we want to create a, a box, like, with some nice art on it um, with different a couple different themes of different kinds of, you know, art and um, that perfectly fit a zine. And so we were like, yeah, let's do that. And um, so we kick-started it, and... The uh, so one of the things that you wouldn't know this even doing RPG publishing, the box manufacturer. So this was a custom box, right? That we had we had a a, a company that was going to do this for us. Well, their rates are extremely elastic, from depending on how much work they have, and that's just the way the industry works. And so we got a quote for whatever it was, like you know three dollars a box. Well, we did the Kickstarter, we made that money. We went back to the box company and we're like, okay, we're ready to go. They're like, well, that quote was only good for 30 days. Here's the new quote. And they doubled the price. And so we had a scrap. We had actually, we were going to pay them 
to do a foil imprint of all the art. And then that would have flown our margins and we would have been completely underwater. So we had to pivot and then do a, um, do an ink, uh, uh, stamp art. So we had to like pay for all these laser cut rubber stamps. And then we had to learn how to become, um, uh, like printers with like, you couldn't just, it wasn't like a pad. You couldn't do it with a pad. You had to use this ink, like printers ink with a brayer and, all this stuff was actually kind of cool. I learned how this stuff works and create a jig to center it. I mean, and so we had to do all this like a manual process and we had hundreds and hundreds of these things. So like this whole holiday season, I got up at four 30 every morning to knock out like 50 boxes before I started my day and then drive back and forth. Cause Carl lived in Philly and I lived in Baltimore and like every weekend then drive back and forth and trade them off and go to the, it was a disaster. Um, and, uh, you know, it was because of the Kickstarter. It wasn't Kickstarter, the company, but that method of doing things that really screwed us and gave me left the bad taste for me. Yeah, I, I could see that. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> I've yeah, it's quite, quite, <laughs> quite the story. Quite the story. Yeah, I. Yeah, it'd be, you'd expect a little bit, but but you're right. That is pretty elastic. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I. It, the smart thing for would have been just a default, but like, I didn't want, I didn't want to default on all those people, you know, who I said that they were going to get this thing. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty stressful. Yeah. Cause I even had a person who it was crazy. He had a Kickstarter. It was for a very low amount. Um, then things happened and he was having problems getting fulfilled. And, um, he decided the right thing was just to give everybody their money back. But I think I, like probably most people, we didn't want our money back. We don't mind waiting another year or two years or three years. We really just want that product. So I think the thing is, is you did the right thing. Uh, maybe it's not quite exactly how it was, but you, you gave people what they were wanting. And I'm sure that, that uh, that's appreciated yeah. to some degree. Of course, some people yeah. are going to be upset. but uh, Oh, yeah, people are always complaining. I, I tune a lot of that out. Um, like some of the, yeah, don't, you know, I, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Um, you should never respond to reviews. That's, that's one thing I've learned in the, uh, in this industry. Um, but yeah, the, the product ended up being better because I think the handcrafted touch of actually, you know, rolling out this ink and then putting this, this custom art, you know, by hand on every box, um, ended up being a much cooler thing, uh, than we would have gotten from the, from the box company. It was just a hell of a lot more manual effort. Um, and, and then we still, we still like barely broke even. Like we made no money on it at and on top of that, I've still got hundreds of these boxes because we had to buy like a thousand was the minimum order was a thousand boxes, right? Um, and the idea was we were gonna do the Kickstarter for the zine vaults, and then we were gonna have the leftover boxes to create a box set that we were gonna then sell later on. But we got so like disgusted with the whole process that we didn't do that second project. And I still, to this day, I give away these bean balls to everybody that comes over to my house. Um, I still have a bunch of them. Yeah. That's, that's kind of interesting. So yeah. Who, who, who knew where, uh, where this would lead you? <laughs> Here you are. Yeah, that's right. No more about yeah. boxes than you ever would have ever wanted. To oh yeah. Learn. I did. Yeah. I did not want to learn all that about the, uh, the custom box industry. Yeah, because you you were for a while there were part of the custom box industry. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 
the sucker in that <laughs> in that in that industry. You know, it's kind of interesting. I was listening to there's a, a podcast called uh, "What Went Wrong." It's talking about movies and talking about Waterworld. And apparently, Kevin mm-hmm. Costner called up uh, Spielberg. You know, because Spielberg did Jaws, and he was doing Waterworld, and uh, and uh, he said. Uh, and, and kind of was asking Spielberg for advice, you know, and Spielberg says, do not, do not film in open water. Do not do that is a mistake. <laughs> so Kevin Costner did it anyway, and it was a mistake. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so anyway, you know, you're the, you're being the Steven Spielberg. So was just say, you know, hey, I got this great idea. I'm going to get these boxes. <laughs> and you're just going to say, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just stick but, with you know, you know. Go with standard size boxes, and you know, even then, I think I think the key is that you have to get them done in China. But for that, you have to have like the business connections there. Which, um, so I think you you need to have a route there because I think you know uh, that's the whole whole other wrinkle. That I'm not an expert on that side of it, but yeah. Joe Goodman is. If anybody wants to, you know, talk to Joseph Goodman, seems to have got that figured out. Yeah, and I think there's a friend of mine found somebody in Marion, Indiana, that also does boxes. Um, and I just got an email, a blind email, went from from a printer in Lithuania, and I really wasn't going to consider it. But then I was talking to another guy just last night, um, and he's using um, I was in Lithuania, but some. So he's able to basically get a book with a hardback book with all the um, like with a ribbon and a few other things. Basically, at the same price you can get it from like Mixum, but just without all the extra stuff. And it's like, but then you got to deal with shipping stuff from another yeah. continent. So it's like, right. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. There's always wrinkles. Um, <laughs> the cool thing about doing this is I've, I've done it enough and met enough people that I kind of know somebody I think who's tried. And now I'm one of those people like with the boxes, but. Uh, I've known people who have done like all the different things there are to do. So I have like somewhere to go and ask um, those kinds of things, uh, you know, like, Hey, where's the best place to do this? Where's the best place to do that? Um, Dave Beatty just put out an amazing uh, book, weird frontiers that yeah. uh, I always tease him uh, as it being um, a retro clone of black powder, black magic. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> um, but I mean, these books are just absolutely stunningly beautiful. Um, and, uh, with a ribbon and the leather cover and all that stuff. Yeah, it can get very expensive very quick. And I was just shocked, like with Mixum, just the fact that it, this, if you just go away from a, the, what they call them, the Elvis Sand papers, but, uh, but the, the papers on the either side that connect to the cover, but if you just go from like black to blue or white to blue, it's, or to red, like it jacks up the price significantly. Like, yeah. I don't understand. You add a ribbon, goes up significantly. You add like thirty percent to your cost or forty percent. I'm like, I don't understand the manufacturing process by using a different color paper would change the price that much. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is just like, well, if this person really wants a different color piece of paper that much, we can gouge him because, like, if you want it that badly, you'll pay more, or you, or because, and if you won't, then you won't, and we don't lose anything. But I. I think that's a lot of it too, you know. So I work for a, a construction or a, a, a I work for Caterpillar, and uh, we paint everything Caterpillar yellow. But right. 
but sometimes people, especially in the the uh, government for the military, they don't want their their vehicles to be yellow. They want to be, you know, uh, car uh, color, whatever whatever the thing is. Or some customers, and they will we'll have to uh, cat will have to purge the paint systems, load the custom paint. I mean, and, and so. I can visualize. I don't know what what the upcharge is for that to say. Yeah, I want my my mining truck in white or my motor grader in in camo. But at least I can understand that. But blue paper, I don't understand. I I understand that you maybe have to. It's like with printers at work. Maybe you have to load up a take the paper out and put a different paper in. And you I get that, but not that much. Like five percent, yeah, right. maybe three percent, yeah. maybe. Yeah, yeah, not double, right? Not, not for John to go walk down and say, okay, I've got the blue paper loaded now, let's go. But, <laughs> but maybe there is, but but I do want to know, like, maybe that legitimately does change the process that much. I don't know. It could, yeah. I mean, the, what the box people told us was that the cost was because they have to reset all the machinery for the run. And if they have other jobs to do, it costs them more to reset the machinery for your run it's more resets that have to go on or something like that. And I'm like, well, I was like, I still think you're screwing me, but I do understand that a little bit. Like that does make sense, right? Like um, there are probably some costs associated with that. Um, again, I don't think it's double, but um, you know, maybe it is. I don't know. I don't run a box factory. So, well, so like, for instance, we needed, um, so we had these, um, these, um, uh, so for rollover protection, there's these platforms, and they got to and, and and these platforms when they get shipped out, they're supposed to have um, they were having problems with rust, so they were wanting these plastic plugs or actually th- like bolts to kind of go in there to to make them their shipping, and then they get shipped back. And so I hooked a, an engineer up with a person that actually makes, and they said, "Yeah, we can do that." They looked into the uh, making these these plastic bolts. Um, and, um, but it was like, like, I don't know, like $50 a piece and they were flabbergasted. I'm like, well, if you order like a thousand of them, it'll be much cheaper per piece. <laughs> I don't right. need a thousand, but yeah, it's like, yeah. you got all that setup time. You know what I mean? They got to load the stock up. They got to run the, it's like, there's a whole lot of that initial setup is very expensive. Right. Everything after that is cheap, you know, and that's what yeah. they want to do is keep running. So a lot of people don't realize that. You know, if you're not getting the volume, that initial setup is just, it will kill you. So, you know, in some ways, you know, Bixom's the same way. If you order one book, you order one book, a hardcover, it's, you're paying, you're going to pay a hundred bucks between that, between shipping and then printing it. If you order, if you order a hundred books, it comes down to like $11 a book. If you order 500 books, it comes out like $9 a book. So it's like, you know, but it, it's, it's, that's the, the scales, the price end of the boxes. If you yep. order, if you order like ten times that amount, they wouldn't even that changeover would even matter. It wouldn't matter to them. It's like it would be so absorbed into the overall that price per box, it wouldn't really make that much difference. But yep, not, now you're right. Dealing, that's right. Yeah, and even with us at Cat, we're dealing with with customer with the suppliers that we're a big company, but there's stuff we buy. We're a very small customer, and they just like I don't care. You got a problem with it? I don't care. <laughs> 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 Go away. We don't need your business. That's <laughs> like, right. But anyway, well, I think you know, once I'm starting to talk about work, I think that's a good signal. Of the yeah, that's right. Yeah, we've, we've covered the gamut. Now we're on the real life. That's boring yeah, as hell. Exactly. <laughs> the scary part. So, 
anyway, is there anything you want to promote or any way you want people to get a hold of you or anything you want to um, add to say as we, we close this out? No, no. I, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've uh, flushed the pipeline here with my creativity the last two things. Uh, Mosley and Maze of Mondelec Demand and Wet Wired. I don't have anything anything coming up, but um, I appreciate the time, and it's great to be on the podcast. Okay, so does that mean you're you're opening up for uh, for for writing gigs? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, if somebody's interested. <laughs> okay, we'll talk. So. Anyway, All right, th- thanks, Jeff. Hey, thank you, Eric. Talk to you later. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you.